Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Uh, hello? Guess who? Me again. Hey, excuse the interruption, but it's a very important interruption. We've decided to put on a show for you, my listeners, who've hung in there and waited and waited, as we have, to get this thing up and running. The show is called The Groomer, and it's about an investigation that I was part of which centred around the distorted world of a pedophile. It's pretty raw, but educational, where I also talk about online grooming with a special guest and the damage that online grooming, or grooming in general, causes to all those involved. So please come and join me on Saturday, the 19th of March, 2022, at the Village Roadshow Theatre at the State Library, 179 Latrobe Street in Melbourne. 7pm start goes till about 9. The tickets are through Eventbrite. Uh, COVID rules will apply and you know the go. Masks, No kissing, no hugging, no smooches, no holding hands, no personal displays of affection. And that's just for me. (laughs) Hope to see you there. Bye. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Please keep in mind that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs. Not everybody will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So there will always be others that see it differently, and I understand that. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime, from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. 
I'm still pinching myself. Thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. In today's podcast, we openly discuss my guest Jane's experiences in forensic photography, where there are some graphic descriptions of what her role entailed. We also discuss suicide quite a bit in both part one and more so part two, which is next week. Please consider if it's right for you, because it definitely is not right for children. Thank you. Today's guest has many strings to her bow, including being a former singer and actor, excuse me, in a James Bond movie, what's more, but it's her career in forensic photography and being a paramedic that I'll be speaking with her about today. At the moment, Jane is clawing her way back to full-time as an AMBO, very slowly due to a PTSD diagnosis a few years back, and I'm happy to say So far, so good. It seems her employer are doing all the right things in helping Jane in her quest to get back into a job she's loved and given everything to for 20 plus years. Jane's foray into forensic photography and being a paramedic yet again supports that point that I bang on about often about how opportunities can present themselves when you least expect them, but they don't come if you're sitting at home waiting for that opportunity to find you. It's actually the other way around. Jane has a fascinating insight into her career in photographing deceased bodies. Oh oh my God, can, can you imagine? And the reasons she's left after only a few years might surprise you. Her career as an AMBO has exposed her to scenarios very few in the community could contemplate. And in the end, it all got too much. But it's a good news story in that sense because Jane listened to her mind and body and she took some time off, recalibrated, and now she's back into it again, albeit much wiser. But that's how dedicated Jane is to our health. So thanks for your time today, Jane. Uh, Well, I've, I've got to be honest, this isn't unusual for my listeners to hear that I've had a few issues, technical issues between us. We have had a few technical issues, but you know what? We've worked through it and surprisingly to both of us, um, it's worked and we got there. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we did, Jane. So, look, thank you very much uh, for joining us. Oh, thank you, Narelle. I um I'm a little bit overwhelmed, I've got to be honest, at, at um, being a guest on your podcast because I've um, listened to you for quite a long time and I've really admired what you've done um, with this part of your life coming out of Victoria Police as you did. So I'm very happy to be here. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happier that you're with me because I, I just think it's interesting. So many people that I speak to, you know, that I ring and say, oh, you know, you've got quite an interesting story. And and uh, to the listeners, Jane was no different. It's like, oh, I don't think I'm really that interesting. Oh, I don't think people will be really uh, interested in that. I'm thinking to myself, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's get on with it, Jane, but thank you again. Uh, so I suppose we start by, I'm going to state the bleeding obvious here that AMBOs are really struggling at the moment, you know, obviously COVID-wise and Omicron-wise. 
uh, we, as in the community, take our hats off to you and your colleagues for doing what can only be described as a really tough job particularly at the moment. So I'm just wondering how are you and your colleagues coping in these unprecedented times? Oh, wow, Narelle. Um, look, I think it's um, not unreasonable to say that we're all pretty exhausted. Um, it's been a very challenging couple of years and um, it's been both physically and mentally more exhausting than the job would normally be because of all of the extra things that we're having to think about in the context of COVID and all mm. of the um, personal protective equipment that we've been wearing for the last couple of years that I'm sure people have seen pictures of on the news. But you can imagine if you wrap yourself up in plastic and you cover your face and your hands and your eyes, it's um, it gets really challenging um, from a physical um, endurance point of view, particularly as the weather warms up, so it's been it's been um, quite exhausting. But you know we're getting through, and I'm hopeful that perhaps we're starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel now. Janie, you're scared. Are you scared of getting COVID or Omicron? Um, look, we're now in a situation, I think, where we can probably say that we know quite a few people personally just in the last couple of months that have had COVID. And I know that's true for me, whereas, say, through 2020 and 2021, that was not the case. So, I wouldn't be happy to catch it um, and I've managed to avoid it so far but I think um, being vaccinated and being otherwise healthy is is a good is a good um, sort of adjunct to help keep you safe and and perhaps have a milder form of COVID than you otherwise would so I hope I don't catch it but um, I'm not it's not the thing that's uppermost in my mind I'd, I'd have to say. Oh, really? I would have thought being an AMBO that that would have been front and centre. Or are you saying that your job and what you are there to do is more important? That's what you're thinking of rather than I think uh, that, catching yeah, COVID? I think that's right. I think when it started a couple of years ago, that's all we could think about to the detriment of everything else. But as mm. we move through, and, and I'm sure – you know, the community generally recognises that regardless of COVID, um, our physical health, our mental health conditions, they continue to present and we have to still get the health system around all of those people and get it working for them with whatever their problems are that aren't related to COVID. So it's always there in my mind, but it's kind of shifted from being the only thing I can think about now to being a consideration along with everything else. Oh, okay. And I suppose that's the same with the general community. We're, we're all, oh, relaxing is the wrong word, but it's not front and centre like it initially was. Yeah. We're, we're getting a bit used to it. And I'm not saying it's good. Uh, I mean, in fact, it's terrible, but we're getting used to having to wear our masks and having to um, sanitise our hands, having to check in, although, to be honest, I don't really understand why we're checking in anymore, <laughs> but anyway, that's, that's for another day. Yeah. But, but Jane, um, could you tell us a little bit, could we go back a little bit, 
you were, before you were in AMBO, and we will talk about uh, some of the amazing, incredible jobs that you've done as an AMBO, but you were a forensic photographer. Yes, yes, I was. It's a, yes, it, it's not a career that many of us would contemplate or choose for that matter. Can you take us through why you became or how you became a forensic photographer? Well, um, I suppose how I became one was really, um, it wasn't by design, it was just by taking an opportunity that was presented, which is what you spoke about before. So um, Hmm. I came from um, an entirely creative background um, with performing arts and photography and things like that. And many years ago, um, I was involved in an arts project um, and one of the other photographers uh, who was on the project with me mentioned that her friend ran the imaging department at um, an institute of forensic medicine which was attached to a coroner's court and she was looking for an assistant and this friend of mine said she didn't personally want to apply but she thought maybe I should apply so I did and um, I went and had a really lovely meeting with the head of department um, who was wonderful and then she took me down to the mortuary to have an interview with the head of pathology and he sat there in the mortuary um, interviewing me for this job and he was on one stool and about a metre away from him there was this dead body on a, on a <gasps> trolley all laid out. <laughs> and I, was, I remember just thinking to myself because at that stage I'd never seen a dead body before and I remember thinking to myself, really? I can't blow the interview there's a dead body over there. Do I acknowledge it? Do I ignore it? What do I do? Yeah. So what did you do? Well, I came in and I kind of pretended that it was the most normal thing <laughs> to have a yeah. job interview with a dead body in the room. Like I was just, I don't know, having a, a job interview for working in a shop or doing so. I, you know, I just <laughs> tried to really downplay it. But I did not know where to put my eyes and I look back on it now and I think how funny that was. But it was pretty overwhelming at the time. But I must have done all right because I got the job. That is amazing, Jane. Like, But that I'm just thinking to myself, I wonder if they were testing you. Like, Because if you were, say, sick or you fainted or something like that, it might have made it. I absolutely think that was part of it Narelle this particular um this particular head of pathology who's incredibly well respected um he also did have quite a flair for the dramatic so I do think that that was definitely part of his plan yeah yeah Hey, hey, that's pretty dramatic. Like yeah. that is, that's an incredible job interview. And I have, I mean, for the listeners, I've spoken re- pretty briefly with Jane really, but I wasn't aware of that. No, I, I didn't that, tell you that one. <laughs> <laughs> that is just amazing. And so was, did you discuss the, the body at all? No, no, not in the... Oh, that's even more bizarre. It was, it was like if you can imagine going into a panel interview and there's someone on the panel who doesn't speak, well, that was the, that was the body. <laughs> he didn't make any reference to this gentleman. I have no idea who he was or why he was there. 
but yeah. <laughs> and did you? And, and, and years later, or months later, like maybe at, I don't know, drinks or something of a Friday night, was it ever mentioned? Uh, not between uh, me and him, but between me and my subsequent boss, it was, and we giggled about it for days. Yeah, <laughs> I bet you did because I'm just thinking. Uh, the mortician or whoever interviewed you in the mortuary, mm. like they would have had an office, so they could have gone up to the office. Absolutely, to he would that, have had an office. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. But but also, you're right about the fact that if you didn't take that opportunity, like you, you would never have known. Oh. I mean, it's it's shown you a completely different side of life. And I'm just thinking now, you said that you'd never seen a dead body no. until then. Yeah. What, why on earth would you go to be, for, be a forensic photographer? Because that's what um, it's all about, isn't it? Did, did you wonder how you'd cope with seeing so many dead bodies? Um, look, I, I really, really did, but I'm also just – naturally quite a curious person and there's not much you can do in life that you can't walk back from I mean obviously you can make some decisions and you completely burn your bridges and that's it you're done but taking a job opportunity if it's not for you you just move on to the next thing and um, Mm. with the music industry it's pretty fickle and I realized that you know the career that I had at the time was really not going to last for very much longer and I did need to do something else I'd never thought of doing this but I just thought well that sounds interesting I'll, I'll see and so that's what happened interesting is an understatement Jane <laughs> <laughs> very interesting <laughs> And so I imagine at a party or at a function, mm. if you told people that you were a forensic photographer, I, I could almost imagine the questions right now. You know, how do you, how many dead bodies have you seen? Have you seen a dead body that's been shot? You know, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So, did you tell people at a party or ever what you did? No, look, um, I'm really quite shy, particularly sort of like in social settings. And so I would much prefer to go to a party and listen to other people talk about what they do than have the conversation turn to me and have me speak. And I recognize the irony of that in talking to you now. But anyway. (laughs) (laughs) You're doing very well for somebody who's so shy. (laughs) Thanks. I'm I'm working on it. Um, But so – I think, yeah, again, my boss and I, we used to say to people that, you know, we were civil servants and try and think of something that sounded really boring because um, whilst people have a a big curiosity about it, I was also really conscious of the fact that it's, it's quite a serious job and I wanted to be really respectful because, whoever I had photographed belonged to someone with someone's family member at some point. And I, I felt a bit funny about that then becoming like party conversation. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So, and I just, it is a bit of a general conversation stopper. Like if I you said, oh yes, oh yes, do, then all of a sudden all the other conversation stops and all the faces turn to you. And, and that just makes me want to crawl under the table and just 
you know, run away. So, yeah, we just used to try and think of something really nondescript and boring and just hope that people would move on and think we were boring people because it's, yeah, it was too hard. So without wanting to offend anybody out there, what what did you say was uh, you did that was nondescript and very boring? Yeah, well, of course we did. We did consider the cliche uh, accountant, but then we realised that neither of us knew anything about finance, so we wouldn't be able to back that up. So we just we just used to say that we were civil servants because if we said we worked for the government, which we did, then that makes us sound like spies. So that was no good either. Um, yeah. But yeah, so we just said we were civil servants and just tried to make it sound really boring and hope that people would move on, yeah. But you're right, at, a, at any sort of social gathering, the minute you say what you did, mm. the floor would just stop, go silent, and they would want to listen to your stories, your war story. War stories is a terrible word, but that's what we that's use in policing. But, yeah, yeah but... but they would want to know because it's just such a, a different field for people to work in and, as you say, fascinating. Mm. So I can understand it would make you the centre of attention and that was the last thing you wanted. Yeah, very uncomfortable being the centre of attention in, in social settings, Narelle. <laughs> oh, right. And gee, and you've got such a an incredible story to tell. It's, yeah, you would be the centre of attention. Uh, so... Can you take us through the role of a forensic photographer, if you can, from the minute you get the job? Do you call it a job? Because in policing we talk about investigations as being jobs. Yeah. Do you call them jobs? Yeah, we do. Yep. So, uh, And particularly also in ambulance as well, we, we call them jobs. But um, I have to be careful not to talk for hours about this because this is a really big thing for me. But there's a, there's a massive difference between a, a forensic photographer and a crime scene photographer. And um, I think that just because of the depictions in the media and things like that, that people often get them confused. So the role of a forensic photographer is to um, take photographs that will assist the pathologist and assist the coroner in whatever they're investigating about how someone has died. Um, so the majority of the things that we did were adverse medical events, perhaps when someone was in hospital and died, um, when they were thinking that perhaps they shouldn't have. I mean, we did also do, you know, car accidents, workplace accidents, suicides and things like that. But we didn't, we weren't part of the police. Um, we didn't go out to a crime scene in the middle of the night and do all of that. We were in the mortuary, um, which was attached to this science centre that I've been speaking about, which was part of the coroner's court. And so the people who had died would come into the mortuary and the pathologists would do their um, post-mortems and we would photograph in a very structured way, but whatever the pathologist requested us to photo. So in some cases it would be injuries, but maybe it would be hearts, it might be brains, it might be lungs. Um, so it's quite a, a science, almost like a lab-based job really. But they all have to be photographed in a very particular way as well. And so sometimes when I'm watching something on TV, I'm like internally screaming at the television because I look at the way that they're doing it and I'm just like, oh, my God, that's so wrong. <laughs> yeah. So so how do you do it? Um, so 
without sort of getting too technical, what you have to do is you have to make sure that the photograph is a, a true depiction of what is actually in front of you. So the angle at which you photograph something, it's either got to be completely on the horizontal plane or completely on the vertical plane. Like you can't take it on the diagonal angle um, you, oh, yeah. yeah, because it distorts the um, perspective. It might make a particular bruise look a bit longer. Um, it might play with the light. So you have to have on the camera, you have to set it up so that the um, settings on the camera are identical for every single case that you do. Um, you're photographing under the same light all the time in the mortuary. So everything is very rigid. So um, if we have to photograph a person, what we do is we photograph them before the uh, post-mortem starts and they come out and they are on a trolley um, and never a silver trolley because that reflects back into the camera lens. And we have a, a ladder, like an A-frame ladder, and we have to climb up the ladder and lean over the top of the ladder so that we're kind of leaning over the body beneath us so that we're in a direct horizontal plane above the body and then we photograph the body in sections from head to toe, um, noting any injuries or anything like that. And then the pathologist and the mortuary technician will come in and they will start their examination and we will stay and photograph whatever it is that needs to be photographed as it goes on but it's a very set thing each time and and the first time I climbed up the ladder and leant over a dead body it was quite unnerving <laughs> yeah so you can't actually use your expertise to I don't know take a, a if, if it's not in that regimented um, order that you have to do you couldn't go in and for instance take a close-up of a bruise or a close-up of a um, of a stab wound or something? Is that what you're saying? Uh, no, you definitely do, but you have to do it um, in a particular way because if you think about the photography as just being like a, a, a lab job in the same way that perhaps toxicology is or hematology is, all the tests that they do have to be performed in the same way every time to the same standard and it's the same with the um, photography so you know you would um, they have little rulers that you write the case number on and you would put that next to the injury that you might be photographing so that you can demonstrate the length of the bruise for example um, but again you you don't photograph at like a 45 degree angle it's got to be either all completely horizontal or completely vertical so if I'm watching television and I see someone walking around and crouching down and snapping away at something, I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'll be watching what now. Are <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but, yeah, so it, it's, it's, quite, it's quite strict and it's quite clinical so that then these images can um, be held to a standard and whoever needs them for whatever investigating they're doing has this certainty that, that they are a correct representation. Have you ever photographed somebody that's made you or something on somebody or inside somebody that's made you feel ill or uncomfortable? Or Yeah, look, um, 
when I first started, I remember there was a, a one particular job that I did, um, and I should say as well when the when the bodies come into the mortuary, you have an opportunity if you want to to read a brief history of what's happened to this person to cause them to die and lead them to be here and you can either read it or not read it and at the beginning I was like oh I want to know what's happened to this person but after after a while you learn that that's probably not the best for you to keep reading because then you kind of can attach some emotion to it you perhaps can yeah you get you get a connection of connection that's it so I remember I'd only been working for a few months and I went into the mortuary one morning to do some photography and there was this guy who I think was probably around 20 and he had hanged himself and so he'd come into the mortuary for um, a post-mortem. And I remember as I was photographing him that I could see all these scratch marks on his neck and I found that really, really distressing and um, it was only when I spoke to one of the um, pathologists afterwards and at that time I didn't really know anything particularly medical at all and he said, oh, that's just a, a reflex. So it doesn't mean that consciously this person changed their mind and it was too late. It's just a reflex and, and you can't actually stop it. So I remember being quite disturbed by that at the time but then for every hanging that I saw, nearly every hanging that I saw subsequent to that, there was usually some kind of scratch mark on the neck and it just sort of, um, it became the, the, the norm, I suppose, which is a very strange thing to say, but yeah. Mm-hmm. And you said that the table that the deceased person is on mm. is not silver. So what is it? made of oh so they it's made of metal but and they definitely do have the the shiny silver looking ones but you can't photograph on those because the reflection of the silver bounces back so they can also um use ones that have been painted a very sort of dull blue gray color so still a metal you still wash it down oh, it yeah. just doesn't, yep. doesn't reflect Okay. Yeah. And when the bodies, when the deceased persons are, are brought in, mm. are they generally clothed like with, let's, for instance, talk about the young man that hung himself. Mm. Was Did he still have his clothes on or had that all been removed and he's there? So it depends. It depends why they're there. So um, if it's a medical reason, then no, in the mortuary, um, they've already had their clothes removed. If it's a workplace accident, they come in exactly as they were dressed at the time, which is, again, is quite strange because then that's a connection. That's the sort of something that makes them human, you know. Oh, yes, um, yes. So it depends why they come in. Obviously, if someone who um, police are suspecting might be victim of a homicide comes in, then they are clothed exactly as they were. Um, generally the majority of people that come in will have had their clothes removed because as, as the majority of them will be medical. Mm, okay. And, and so you would take a photograph, I imagine, of every piece of clothing when it's on the person and then um, when it's removed? Mm. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. So um, in the case of um, 
say, a suspected homicide, um, there's usually two sets of photographs that get taken. One would be taken by someone like me and those photographs that I took would be given to the pathologist, but then the police would also send their crime scene photographer to the mortuary because the crime scene photographer had already been to the location, wherever it happened to be. And the crime scene photographer would take a second set of photographs that the detectives would then use. So there are two sets of photographs in the case of a um, victim of homicide. Okay. Have you ever, I know you said that there's a big difference and when you explained it, you can understand the difference between a forensic photographer Mm. and a crime scene photographer, but have you ever been required to go to a crime scene? And if so, why would you go to a crime scene? Yeah, no. So very, very rarely um, there might have been a phone call um, during the day to say that um, the police didn't have anyone available to be on call overnight. It happened very rarely though. But in those circumstances, they would say, um, can we place one of you on call overnight just in case? Um, and I can only remember that happening once in the time that I was there and nobody went out, nothing happened that night. So, yeah, it didn't happen. But generally it just doesn't happen. Mm, mm. Yeah, I bet you didn't sleep that night <laughs> basically being on call. <laughs> you know, it's funny, I used to be called, pardon me, but I used to be called a shit magnet yeah. because whenever I went on call, for whatever reason, it was just, it was never something... When I say basic, I certainly don't mean that to offend, but whenever I was called at it, you know, I don't know, there might have been, I don't know, two rapes in the one street and he's on the run and, uh, you know, somebody screaming in a house, um, there's somebody, oh, Yes, anyway. Yeah, oh, I'm, you know. I'm pretty familiar with that <laughs> name myself, yeah. <laughs> I thought you might be. <laughs> and so can you tell us how the room is set up where you take these photographs? Um, yes. Yeah, so the room where I worked had one large central room um, and then it had two separate rooms to the side. One was called the homicide room for obvious reasons and it had a a large window in one side where uh, the detectives could actually stand without physically being in the room and there was a microphone connection so they could speak to the pathologist. And then there was a, um, a negative pressure room which would be used if um, there needed to be an examination on someone who either had uh, like a serious communicable disease, say something like Ebola perhaps, or if the um, body was in such a state of decomposition that it actually was going to make everything smell in the large room. So they, those were the main rooms and then there were two very large fridges, uh, walk-in fridges, and then there was a, a freezer section as well and a, a room with a CT scanner in it. So it's quite a big facility and it's probably changed a lot since I was there as well. You know, I can always remember the homicide room. I found that fascinating because you could you sat there and I found it I don't know why there was only I think I might have told this before but there's only one part of an autopsy that used to make me feel really 
sick and it was when they um, opened up the stom- stomach contents. Oh, I had yeah. no idea why. Yeah. But every everything else I could deal with, you know, the opening up of the head and the, uh, the skull and the brain and all that, I found that fascinating. But for whatever reason, the stomach contents, oh, boy. But what I found fascinating was that we were all mic'd up so the uh, the pathologist might or whoever it was that was taking the the um, body parts out of the body you know like for instance they might hold a the brain in their hand and they'd go well here's where I don't know say a knife has gone so we could ask you know, how do you think that knife, do you think they've been standing up? All sorts of different things, but you could actually talk to the and discuss with the pathologist. I used to find, not the pathologist, the, what do you call the person doing it? Yeah, the pathologist. The pathologist. I always used to find that fascinating and they would tell us what they were doing and why they were doing it. You know, it was like a a constant um, conversation Deep, no, not even a debrief. It was just fascinating, a fascinating field. Yeah, yeah, it, it is It is really, really interesting and it's. I found it quite interesting that um, I don't know how graphic I'm allowed to get here but um, when they make the uh, incision into the scalp at the top of the head um, in order to examine the brain, you can actually peel the person's face down off their skull. And yes, so you don't peel you peel it sort of halfway down to about the nose but then to me when I saw that process um this then just became um an examination it wasn't really a person because the face had temporarily disappeared jewelry isn't a gift you give just once it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Kid, so mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's... It's a really interesting job. Yes, it is, and I'm sure there's some listeners out there that are feeling a bit queasy. But <laughs> and I, yeah, and I will do a warning at the at the top 
uh, of the of the podcast, but it is fascinating, awful, and a bit creepy, sort of. But it is fascinating, and and I just think, you know some people are a little loath to talk about it and understand why. But when you get somebody that um, is comfortable talking about it, like you are, I just think it, it's a it's a different it's a different world. <laughs> so many of my guests, it's a, it is a different world. So, what sort of equipment do you have? Well, when I was there, um, they were trying to make the transition from film over to digital. So we had uh, film cameras and they were doing the transition very slowly and very carefully because I'm sure you can imagine that um, you don't want to leave any room for anyone thinking that any digital image might have been um, enhanced or modified or changed in any way. So um, we probably stayed with film a bit later um, than, say, the rest of the world had moved across to digital photography because we were just trying to go through that whole process. So when I was there, we had... um, Nikon film cameras and a range of lenses and a range of different lights and a ladder. <laughs> Amazing. Just such a basic thing, isn't it, yeah, a ladder? Yeah, and, and Wellington <laughs> boots. <laughs> of course. Boy, do I understand why I have Wellington boots. My goodness. Um, so with all these, like that must have been at times, I imagine it could affect you uh, a great deal a little I don't know but did you debrief regularly no um we really really didn't um so there were two of us most days of the week and if one or other of us had photographed something that we found interesting then we would chat informally about it or for me coming in and being a new person for the first sort of few months, I would quite often find myself saying things like, oh, gosh, I wasn't expecting dot, 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 you know. Um, I didn't expect people who had been incinerated to smell like barbecue, and that was very confusing, you know. I didn't there, – there were lots of sort of things. So we would chat informally but there was no there was no debriefing at all I don't know if that has changed but I think that's probably um quite an issue that there wasn't a lot of debriefing but no we just did it informally I would imagine these days that debriefing would almost be par for the course Mm. I think Mm. mental health wise I think a a workplace requires debrief would require debriefing like I said, I think it would be par for the course. So in saying that, was there ever a time where you felt you would have liked a debrief but you didn't? Like is there something that has stayed with you? Oh, look, certain certain jobs stayed with me. Um, but I think because for the time I was there, and I was really only there sort of between two and three years, the time I was there, um, I did become very good friends with my boss and we would chat over things, you know. Um, We'd go out and have a coffee or a drink and just have a chat on that informal basis. So I don't think that um, I particularly carry any um, 
ongoing trouble from that time. I mean, I certainly do remember things quite vividly and some of them are quite weird and quite bizarre and and people would find quite disturbing. And I have to be careful that I don't just blurt out and say things because people get quite shocked. I've got to pick my audience a little bit. You know, the things like <laughs> I think you're pretty safe with this yeah. audience. Well, you know, almost almost the gorier the better for yeah. them. <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, or fortunately, pets do eat their dead owners. Um, you know, I've seen quite a few quite a few people come in where they've they've had their arms and their legs chewed down to the bone. Um, yeah, oh it, goodness, it, I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> It's not an urban myth. It actually happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You did tell us there was an interesting case, um, which is pretty incredible. I'll just um, remind you the ham sandwich. Oh, yeah. So back earlier when you mentioned, um, you know, not really talking about what you do at parties because people will often say, what's the worst thing you've ever seen or done or photographed when I look back on it um when people have asked me that and oh what's the worst thing you've ever photographed I would say sometimes that it was a ham sandwich and they thought that I was taking the piss and they and I really wasn't and the reason that it was probably the worst thing was that um I was in the homicide room and uh someone had been brought in there who had been uh, caught in a house fire. And so we'd finished photographing the body and the body was completely burnt and charred. But they had also brought from the scene this um, half a ham sandwich with a, a bite mark along the diagonal line of the sandwich. And they needed me to photograph these bite marks in the sandwich quite closely so that those bite marks could be compared with the impression of the dead person's teeth to see whether or not that had been a sandwich that they'd eaten. And I don't really know any more about the circumstances of the case, but I had such a (laughs) strong memory of standing there in the room photographing this sandwich (laughs) and just thinking to myself, this is not a normal job. (laughs) You're right there. I really need to have a serious talk with myself. (laughs) Uh, That's funny. Um, You've you've mentioned a little bit today that you were only there two or three years and you said that it was an interesting job but then it became a bit repetitive and mundane. Can you elaborate on that a bit for us? Well, (sighs) I think, honestly, if I hadn't had the um, opportunity to apply for my job as a paramedic, then I probably would have stayed quite a few years more. But because I mentioned that um, it had to be done in a very particular and scientific way, there was never any scope for... Um, doing anything different in the way that you photographed or coming in with a new idea because there was there were Australian national standards for everything because it's such a serious job. Um, 
and there were policies for everything. So you essentially would come in and your work day pretty much was the same every day. You came in in the morning, you went into the mortuary, you photographed however many people that was, then you came out and in the afternoon you did your office work and you went home. And that was that was the job. But um, I remember going into the mortuary. I remember the time I decided to quit. I went into the mortuary and there was nothing particularly unusual happening that day and I was down the far end of the room, um, up a ladder, leaning over this older guy who'd come in for medical reasons and just doing some establishing shots before the um, mortuary technician started and I just had this split second, you know, where your stomach leaps up and I thought I was about to lose my balance and fall on this dead guy hmm. and I didn't lose my balance and I didn't fall on him, but I just thought, oh, fuck. Oh, sorry. Sorry for swearing. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I think I'd be saying that and worse. <laughs> I just thought, you know what, I think I'm done here. I think I've had enough now. It's been the most amazing opportunity and I've learnt so much and just so much about life to be honest with you but it was, yes. I think it was also because I kind of knew in the back of my mind that I had this other opportunity that I could go on to that it made the decision a lot easier but I did not like that feeling of almost falling on a dead guy <laughs> just no that wouldn't be that, it was that unnerving yeah yeah so that was the day I decided to leave yeah Oh my goodness! I can. I'm just imagining it now. It would be, oh, be so. Yes, it'd be terrible. Uh, so, did you ever have contact with the family of any deceased person you photographed? No, no, no. I never did, and that's, I think, got a lot to do with why I don't think that job has caused me really too many problems down the track mm, with my mm. mental health. Maybe if I'd stayed there a lot longer, then perhaps it would have, but um, no. So unless you read the history, um, you really didn't know anything at all about the person that you were photographing. And even if you did read the history, you didn't have personal contact with anyone at all. Um, so it became very easy to remain detached from the whole process and, and just be quite scientific about it. Yeah, you would be able to compartmentalise it, but yeah. I think that's a really wise decision because the minute that you start, find, well, as you said, you find out that they were, so, say, a father or, uh, you know, they just had a, the father had just had a, his wife had just had a baby or it, it would just be awful and I think it's um, it would save, as you said, your mental health a great deal by not knowing the intricacies and just this is a dead body, I've got my, my job to do. And so were you ever required to give evidence at court about the photographs that you'd taken? Uh, no, not in my... Role. You're lucky. No, <laughs> not as a forensic photographer and, and part of that is due to the standards that we work to. So I think it would only be if there was some question over the authenticity of the photographs or a particular aspect of a photograph that perhaps wasn't quite right that you would be called in to give evidence. But because they were all done so well to such a high standard, um, no, not as a forensic photographer. 
Yeah, I did as a paramedic, but that's another story. <laughs> well, actually, that's a very good segue because I I was just going to say we might move on to so you then did become an AMBO. Yeah. And most people listening will probably have an idea about the variety and complexity of the jobs that AMBOs, yourself included, they attend. You know, there's, well, you know, shootings, uh, victims of car accidents, farm accidents, natural disasters, we could go on. But can you tell us when you started to realise that you were thinking, reacting differently to what was normal? So you'd obviously been to a lot of uh, different scenarios or different incidents, accidents. Mm. When was it and how long after you'd become an AMBO did you think, I'm not um, acting correctly here or managing properly? Yeah, it's... Look, I think it's important to say that everyone um, responds differently. So I can only talk about what happened for me. And I think it just, it was really insidious, Narelle. Like it just kind of crept up. And um, I know you would understand that, you know, you would have a job that would stay with you for a while and perhaps you'd wake up in the middle of the night and you'd be thinking about it and you might be thinking about it for a few days and then gradually it would recede and you'd move on to whatever else was happening. Um, but I suppose if I go back to about 2018, I started to notice that um, I was having what I now recognise to be a few symptoms but at the time I didn't really recognize that they were symptoms I just I kind of was in a little bit of denial and I thought oh everyone in the community thinks the way I think and then I stop and I think no maybe not maybe it's just all ambos think the way I think so mm -hmm. there's nothing wrong with me all ambos think that way and then I began to realize that actually no that's not true either and perhaps I wasn't well and what I noticed was that um I became really hypervigilant and I know you and I've talked about this a lot but what that means is that if you can imagine um, that you're on this constant state of alertness, um, a little bit like you might be watching a toddler walk on a really high wall and hoping that they don't fall off or something like that, you know, so you're constantly waiting for something to go really badly. The what if, aren't you? You're constantly what if yes. they fall. Yeah. What if, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. And, and so then that starts to affect your sleeping and your sleeping gets worse and worse. But then I wasn't even particularly paying any attention to that. What started to get quite bad for me was um, these intrusive thoughts and Again, it's a little bit like if you could imagine having um, watching a, a, a film or something and you ha just have glitches in the signal. So I'd be walking down the street doing something really mundane and then I'd have this really quick flash of something absolutely horrific happening and then a split second later it would be gone and I'd still be just walking down the street to do my shopping or whatever it was. Um, and that got worse and worse. It started off just while I was out in the street but then it progressed and I'd be out socially with friends of mine and they'd be chatting about their day um, and we'd be having a coffee or whatever and all of a sudden 
um, I see them get slashed across the throat with blood spurting out everywhere and then a second later that would be gone and they'd be sitting there talking to me. And um, those sorts of intrusive thoughts got worse and worse and so it got to the point where it didn't matter whether I was with friends or family or people that I didn't know. Um, within a few minutes of being in their company, I was imagining the most horrific things happening to them in the middle of something completely normal. But it would just be these really split second, like almost like like little electric shocks and then they mm. would go. Um, but they really throw you, don't they? they? Do Those intrusive you. thoughts. Yeah. They yeah. do throw you. And, the, and as you know, like we're trained to – be very calm in our responses and and all of that kind of thing. And so I've learnt for good or bad and probably a bit of both really to conceal my emotions and conceal my stress. So it all goes on internally, but you don't really see anything happening on the outside. So, you know, I've been nodding and smiling at my friends and asking them questions and all of this horrific stuff would be playing in my head at the same time. Um, and then from there, it's, <laughs> I look at it now, I mean, I understand it and I am kind of laughing, but I found it really difficult to cross the road because I couldn't quite work out where to stand and where to wait for the lights to go green where I wouldn't be killed by a car screaming through the intersection. And, you know, I used to do things like wait in shop doorways. I couldn't stand at the side of the road. It was just some intersections were worse than others. Um, and then I ended up not being able to be in loud environments, um, always having to sit with my back to the wall if I was somewhere um, and sudden loud noises. That was the worst. And, and, even if they weren't, and, and male voices, so even if they weren't saying anything horrible, like if you imagine if you go to a football match and someone scores a goal and, and all the guys mm. yell and roar, that was mm. absolutely terrifying. Um, so mm. all of those things, and then I just realised, yeah, I'm not well. I'm not well at all. Mm. Mm. How long had you been an Ambo when you started to realise this is not how everyone thinks? Um, well, 2018, I, I was 17 years in then 2018, it was when the symptoms really kicked in, but I think mm. they just drip feed over the course of your whole career, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's just this gradual buildup that you just don't even notice really. So what happened in the end? The, this was overwhelming, all these intrusive thoughts, your hypervigilance. Mm, mm. What, hap what happened then? Well, I was cycling through that whole pattern of just ignore it, maybe do something about it. Uh, I haven't got time to do anything about it today. I'll think about it next week. And um, I woke up one morning and I was due to start work later in the day. I had an afternoon shift and so I was getting dressed to go to work and I had to leave in about 15 minutes and all of a sudden I was like half dressed and I realised that I couldn't finish getting dressed and I actually spent about five minutes just standing in the bedroom and just not being able to move to put the rest of my work clothes on to go to work. 
And after about five minutes of just standing really still, I thought, well, I can't stand here forever. They're going to wonder where I am. I better do something. So I rang like our boss and uh, he answered the phone and I just completely broke down actually and just said, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't do this anymore. And I was about to start work in about, you know, 20 minutes. And he was actually, he was lovely. He just said, do not worry about it. Don't worry about it. I'll take you out. This is what I'll do. Just, and you know, he, he was just, he was just wonderful. And actually quite a few months later when I was feeling a bit better, I did um, actually ring him up and uh, apologize because I actually had been thinking that it was a really horrible phone call for him to take um, because obviously mental health is a big issue in this industry and and, um, mental health of paramedics and suicide of colleagues and all of that kind of thing. So it would have been a very stressful phone call for him to take um, and I I wanted to apologise to him for causing him that stress and he was just, he was lovely. He was absolutely lovely. So, yeah, so that was the day it all stopped for a while. Are you okay to continue? Yeah, look, I'm I'm okay. I'm in a... um, I'm definitely in a better place than um, I am. I was back then, for absolutely mm. sure. Because you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm I'm back to work, um, but I still do have symptoms. Um, which of course, I, you would. Yeah, yeah. Which I just have to try to manage, and I just have to have the insight to. Um, be able to say when things are getting a bit too much, you know. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, I was just going to say feel free if things are, you know, if we're delving a bit deep, but um, it's just you have a, a really lovely way of explaining things to people that just don't get it. You know, it, you, you just you seem to be able to, uh, yeah, you just explain it really well. So... Your response to your PTSD diagnosis. Yeah. Um, how did you recover? Was it? What do you think helped a great deal in your recovery? Was it from being away from work? Was it your the psych that you saw? Was it some sort of a process? Like I did EMDR, and I found that incredibly helpful. But you know, it's not for everybody. Mm. How did you get back to being able to return to work? Um, look, it was a combination of many things um I did take some time off work I took a few months off work and then when I came back to work in 2019 I um I'd had a graduated return to work um and I yeah I started seeing a psychologist in in 2018 who I still see today and it really became about a process of um, understanding that a lot of the symptoms that I had anyway were coming from really the fact that I couldn't control things that I felt like I wanted to control. Um, And for me, a lot of the um, jobs that have caused me 
distress and trauma have been around um, people taking their own lives for the very many reasons that they do. But my um, thoughts around suicide are really, really complicated and very difficult for me to tease out because um, we see as, as paramedics and as police, we see the devastation that any suicide causes the people oh, yeah. around the yeah. person who has died. And yeah. as you touched on before, when you deal with the families of people who have died, that is the, um, that's the most traumatic, that's the most difficult part of what we do. Um, I remember this one job that I did where unfortunately this uh, teenage girl had taken her own life and the mother of this girl had found her and I was speaking to the mother who was understandably completely distraught and in her distress she was um, punching her fists down on my leg and gripping me on the arms and doing all of that kind of thing, not in any way to assault me at all, but I'm saying she was so... Great, just overcome. And and at that time she was alone in the house with, unfortunately, her dead daughter and with us. And so you can't say, well, I'm going to protect myself now, so I'm going to walk off and see you later. So you do end up exposing yourself to huge levels of grief and guilt and anger and pain and all of the emotions that people have under those circumstances. And um, those kind of things are very, very difficult to, for me anyway, to get past. And so one of the constant themes of the work that um, my psychologist has been doing with me is talking about you can't control everything, you know. Mm, you, yeah, you can't yeah. control the circumstances that led up to this. You, you've got to focus on what you can control. You can't control that. Um, yeah, so it's... It's a long, I think it's, a, it's going to be an ongoing process for me um, and even if, you know, down the track when I retire, when I leave the industry, I think I'm permanently changed in the way that I think now. I think I'm always going to feel and think differently and see life differently to other people and I just have to be really, really mindful about that as well because most ordinary people I think probably wouldn't want to see life the way perhaps you and I see it. Like, you know, I'll go out for a walk or a drive around the streets and I'll go, oh, dead person there, crazy person there, stabbing there, you know? Yes, As yes. You past all the houses. And, and funnily enough, your friends don't really want to hear that. <laughs> no, you're right. And, and I must admit uh, there's been a couple of places when my husband and I were looking for places to buy there was a couple of places that my husband loved, a couple of areas that he loved. And I remember saying to him, I couldn't live in this uh, particular area mm. because I'd been to that many jobs mm. with drunk, with drunks, with assaults, with sexual assaults. And so 
we could. I, I completely get that. Um, you know, I have you talking about when the families, when you meet them, and that is where the uh, the damage is done. Really, I'd have to say I've got a very dear friend who's been a, a, a guest on my podcast, and he was a policeman, a really. I'd, I'd have to say a, almost a decorated policeman. He was a brilliant detective, but he said, give me any job, any, uh, I'm sorry, but hanging, suicide, mm. drowning, you name it. Mm. But he said it was the emotional toll mm. of going and speaking to the family, dealing with the family, dealing yeah. with their grief, seeing their sadness, yeah. their trauma. He said he just, that's what uh because he ended up um, being diagnosed with PTSD to the point he actually tried to, well, he was at the point of uh, ending his life. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he was saved. But, yes, yeah, so I get that about yeah. that that connection that you get with people. Yeah, and, look, you know, oh, we talk at work and it's, again, it's quite blunt, but we talk at work um, about in terms of the, the patients that we go and see, um, be alive or be dead. And when we say be dead, what we mean is, you know, if you're, say your heart stopped and, you know, you need CPR, that's that's fine as well because then potentially we can do something for you. So be alive, be dead, but don't be dying. So to actually go to someone and watch them die in front of you is quite horrific. And it's happened to me a few times. I've had... Um, Twice I've had people commit suicide in front of me and that's been horrendous. Um, but once I've had a, um, a young girl who was run over by a four-wheel drive and desperately needed surgery and, you know, we couldn't have gone any quicker but she was going to die. She had the most horrendous injuries and I was watching her die in front of me. She was watching me as she was dying and that was also really horrible. So I think it's... Uh, if you can desensitize yourself and, and not connect because the person's either dead or, or whatever it is, it's when you make these emotional connections, that's what does the damage, I think. Mm. And they say, and it's true, that you cannot unsee something that you've seen. No. You cannot, and I don't care how many psychs would maybe argue with that, I don't know, but I know I could tell you every single a stressful situation I've seen, it is there. Mm. However, we learn to put it to the back of our mind rather than at the front and with those what you were talking about, those intrusive thoughts. Yeah. They are nowhere near as intrusive but they're still there. Yeah. Anyway, look, look, Jane, in finishing, thank you so much for sharing so much about uh, your life. It, it's it's fascinating is the wrong word, but it sort of is, you know. Um, uh, but but also I think it's it's sort of sad that, and it's not just you, so many first responders are so damaged by everything that they see. Yeah. But we do those sort of things. We don't even, I don't know about you, I'm pretty sure you'd be the same, but you don't think about yourself. You're always thinking about, somebody else you want them to feel better you want to help them you want to oh, I don't know it's just no you, you're, you're constantly right you're completely right Narelle that's that's exactly what it is and um we've just got to find a way 
to do that whilst looking after ourselves as well. That's that's the difficult part, I think. Yeah, it's a fine line. Anyway, um, in closing, is there anything you'd like to, I don't know, share with people out there about whether it be, uh, I don't know, forensic photography or your uh, ambos or oh. anything? Um, I don't know really. I think... Um, well, don't trust what you see on TV with regard to crime scene for forensic photography. Oh, I never, <laughs> I never will again. <laughs> um, but I suppose um, I think it's if you have a friend or a family member perhaps who's um, a paramedic or mm-hmm. um, perhaps works for mm. police, um, just be aware that there's all sorts of things going on that perhaps they might not even realise themselves. Um, weird symptoms like um, being really forgetful, um, having upset stomachs, being irritable, uh, all of these things that impact on the those people around us who we, you know, we really love and care about because mm. we've just got a lot a lot going on under the surface that we might not show. So, um, yeah, if you if you know anyone who works in the industry, you know, maybe go out for a walk with them, buy them a coffee, buy them a drink and, and just mm. ask them how they're going. But um, mm. it's look at and, and mean it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's, that's a, nice, um, a nice thought to end up on, Jane. So I've got to say thank you just for – keeping every one of us out there um, as healthy as possible and and as we just said, often putting yourself in danger or putting everyone else's health in front of your own. Um, but you're doing that because somebody needs you and um, all I can say is thank you to you and your colleagues. Anyway, thanks for your time. Thanks thank for your time you, today, Jane. Thank you for the opportunity to um, chat to you today. I've um, really enjoyed it despite my nerves, so thank you very much. Today may have triggered some of you out there, so please make sure you do something that makes you feel good in the next couple of days or hours after listening to this. It isn't easy listening. Next week, we talk more about how the many suicides that Jane attended has affected her as an ambo. This isn't a conversation if you've been touched by suicide. However, it's a subject which I believe needs to be discussed so that we can learn and help those who are in a very dark place. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hello, guess who? 
just a quick interruption here to let you know you can now become a Narelle Fraser Interviews Patreon. How exciting! Simply go to www.patreon, that's P for Peter, A-T-R-E-O-N for Narelle.com and search for Narelle Fraser Interviews. And to all of you out there who continue to support me, thank you so much. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.